Now, to start off with this evening, we, we live in a world, don't we, at the moment, where the concept that there is no God, the concept that God does not exist, is an idea which we're bombarded with, aren't we, all the time. And this idea that there is no God, I think, firmly has its roots set in what I've termed the atheistic soil of this modern age in which we live, this age of scientific materialism. Well, what do we mean from the outset by that term, this age of scientific materialism? Well, we live, don't we, in the era of the expert. Everybody seems to be an expert these days, but predominantly in the age in which we live, it is the scientific expert, isn't it, which holds sway, whose ideas and thinking perhaps are rarely questioned by us as the layman. If we're therefore told by scientists and by science as a whole that there is no God, perhaps we find ourselves inclined to believe them. After all, they are respected, aren't they? Respected experts, we may say. And on top of this, the world in which we live today, especially those of us that are privileged enough to live in the Western world, whether we like it or not, live very materialistic lives, don't we? We have need of nothing in our day-to-day -day existence. And as a result, perhaps, the perception is that there is no need of God. We have everything we, we need, and we're very happy with that, aren't we, perhaps? Thank you very much. And that is the sorry situation in which we find ourselves in this day and age. After all, if God made everything, who made God? And that, in fact, is the skeptic's favourite question. And that question, if, if God made everything, who made God, is a question asked repeatedly by people such as Richard Dawkins and his fellow new atheists, as they're called. And they wield this question, they flourish this question like a sword drawn from the twin scabbards, we could say, of philosophy and science. They argue that we made God. These atheists go on to argue that we are not God's creation, he is ours. They argue that God is a mental construction that mankind as an entity once needed to explain their very existence. But that mental construct of God is no longer needed because science explains everything these days instead. And a very sorry state of affairs that is, certainly from our perspective as Christadelphians, of course. But we must say, dear friends, that there are a significant problems with the we made God hypothesis. Firstly, it falls into the very same trap, doesn't it, that the atheist cunningly sets when they ask, if, we made, if God made everything, who made God? Because when the atheist confidently declares that we made God, it must therefore be asked in retort, if we made God, who made us? Just to reply, as atheists so often do, that evolution made us, 
just won't do. Evolution isn't a cause of anything. Evolution is a perceived observation. It's a way of putting things into categories, we might say. Evolution says absolutely nothing about causes. And yet, evolution remains at the very foundation argument brought to us by the atheists. And therefore, it's pertinent that we consider evolution for a moment, isn't it? You see, if atheists purport that evolution is the means by which life arose, then there is clearly a conflict, isn't there, with the biblical account of creation right from the outset. So what is evolution then? I put up on the screen there just one of, of many different definitions that are available for what evolution is. This one is, as you can see, is from the Oxford Concise Science Dictionary. And it says there that evolution is the gradual process by which present diversity of plant and animal life arose from the earliest and most primitive organisms, which is believed to have been continuing for the past 3000 million years. Now, I've got a bit of a background in considering evolution. My background is in environmental science. Uh, I currently work as a park ranger in the natural world around us. And if we look at the arguments here in terms of what evolution actually is, when we peel back the layers and the concepts that overlay it, which can be quite confusing, the core of the argument is this. Essentially, Evolutionists are saying that life came from non-life. Remove out of the question any element here of the time frames involved. Removed any element here out of the question of how long it took for certain things to happen, according to evolutionists. When it boils down to the core message of evolution, it is that. That life came from non-life. It just happened. And in fact, my dear friends, what we may not be aware of is that underlying the theory of evolution is in fact a very old scientific theory which goes back to the 16th century. It is the idea of spontaneous generation. There were many in the, the 16th century who believed that this was the cause of life. There were people believed that maggots just appeared in manure. And a picture here of where people thought bees came from was dead calves. And of course, the idea here of spontaneous generation, that life just happened, that it came ultimately from non-life, has been disproved scientifically over the centuries. Scientists such as Reddy in 1688, Spallanzani in 1780, and one we may all have heard of, of course, Louis Pasteur in 1860. Through their experimentation, they revealed that if their mediums were sealed off completely from other forms of life, then no life arose. And this gave birth, if you'll excuse the pun, to the law of biogenesis. This is a scientific law backed by evidence. And the law of biogenesis states quite certain to, in quite certain terms that life does not come from non-life. 
Life has to come from life, from the outset. And therefore, even in the scientific sphere, the theory of evolution, and yes, it remains a theory, is what we call in science a null hypothesis. It is null, it is void scientifically and should be discarded, but it's not. It's held onto, it's grasped at, and we shall see why very shortly. So could we describe then evolution itself as a science, perhaps? Well, the short and the blunt answer, my dear friends, is no, evolution is not a science. You'll see from the screen there that the word science comes from the Latin sio, meaning knowledge. And by definition, it is the process of developing a hypothesis and then testing it to prove whether it's right or not. There is no way of testing evolution because of the time scales that are involved. There is no way of saying for certainty, in a certain way, that evolution is true. Evolution is not a science, but here is the problem. It forms a foundation for science. And there are a growing number in the scientific community who are now saying that evolution has led, led to the gross misuse of science and the distortion of science and, and research. You see, sadly, the acceptance in this modern age in which we live by society in general of evolution as the means by which life came into the world has very sadly led many individuals to completely reject the biblical account of creation. And the sad thing is that alongside the biblical account of creation, the whole of the word of God, the whole of the Bible is rejected also. The entire message goes out the window. And herein, sadly, lies the consequence of this. The failure of many to receive the grace of God and the gospel, the good news message of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, my dear friends, the ultimate end point of evolution is that we can only experience a meaningless existence on earth and a hopeless future. And this is something that the Bible cautions. In several places, it speaks of the ways of man. And one particular I'll quote to you is from Proverbs. And it says in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And that is certainly true in the case of evolution. There is a way that seemeth right to a man. The world in general likes to believe, oh yes, that the world came into being through an evolutionary process, but the end thereof, what's the end of that? The end thereof is the ways of death. There is nothing but death waiting, is there? Uh, furthermore to this, if you've got a Bible in front of you, let's just have a look at the letter to the Romans in the New Testament. So we've got uh, the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and then the book of Acts, followed by the book of Romans. And here in Romans, we have some particularly pertinent words on this topic, don't we? Romans chapter one and looking at verse 25 initially. Speaking here of mankind and their corruption of the things of God. Romans chapter one and verse 25, mankind who changed the truth of God into a lie 
and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Certainly true, isn't it, of, of evolution, perhaps, who changed the truth of God, the creation account in this, the beginning of the Bible, into a lie, and who worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. And how often do we, do we see this purported? I mean, we see it, don't we? If anyone's watching Autumn Watch at the moment, um, which is uh, just started uh, on the telly again, we see the marvels and the wonder of the creatures and the things that are there in the world around us. And yet, despite the worshipping of the creature, the creator is completely and utterly left out of the picture in favour of the theory of evolution. And if we just scroll down here in Romans chapter one and to verse 28, speaking again of the results of these things in terms of mankind. And even as mankind did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, and so the list of woe goes on. As mankind chose to go his own way in believing those things of evolution. And so we saw that moral decline which follows afterwards also as a result of those things. You see, according to God's word, the Bible, Mankind is a responsible creature. One day we will give account of our life's actions and motives. But you see, responsibility, perhaps conveniently, goes out of the window, doesn't it? When mankind is viewed as some vague, purposeless endpoint of an evolutionary process, he is conveniently released from all moral obligations and processes. And therefore, perhaps it is more comfortable for mankind to believe in evolution because it releases them from responsibility. I'm quite happy as I am, thank you very much. I have no responsibility and therefore there is no restriction on that which I can do in my life. So with that little background then to the foundation of this argument uh, that who may of who made God, let's return for a moment now to the problems with the we made God hypothesis, as it were. The seeming logic of this argument brought forward by atheists leads us, in fact, in an unexpected direction. And here on the screen, uh, just for a moment, I'm going to put up a one act play just to prove that point. And I'll explain as we go through the point of this. But I'd like you to imagine that on the screen here in this one act play, there are three people. There is a theist, there is somebody who believes in God. There is a first atheist and a second atheist, two who don't believe in God at all. Uh, and enter left onto the stage an inquirer wearing a somewhat puzzled expression, perhaps. And here is the play. The inquirer enters feeling particularly puzzled. And that's the question of these three. Excuse me for interrupting, but can you tell me who made everything? The theist replies, yes, God made everything. First atheist, oh, so who made God? 
atheist, second atheist, we made God, theist. Then who made us? First atheist, evolution made us. And that's as far as we've got, isn't it, in the argument so far? Theist, well, where did evolution come from? Atheist, it's part of everything. Everything made evolution, inquirer. Excuse me for interrupting, but who made everything? Oh, never mind. And you can see the point that's being made there quite clearly, can't you? The inquirer exits wearing an even more puzzled expression at the end. Now, when the M25 was built in 1986, there were a number of people who decided that they would just drive round it for the fun of it. And since they ended up exactly where they started, you may feel that that was a particularly pointless exercise. But a philosophical argument such as this, which you'll see from the screen in that play, that ends up precisely where it started is even more pointless and ridiculous. And as you can see there, such is the claim that we made God. The second problem about this contention that we made God is that it is completely and utterly devoid of any evidential basis whatsoever. It's not, in fact, an explanation at all, is it? It doesn't explain religious concepts. It doesn't explain religious experience or the almost universal religious instinct of mankind, ancient or modern. Rather, we would suggest, it's a smokescreen concealing ignorance, a speculative shrug of the shoulders concerning the substantial phenomenon of religious belief. And I think, my dear friends, if we drill down, this is the point. Beginning with the hidden premise that God does not exist objectively, the atheist looks for and finds an alternative explanation for religious faith. That is the point I think we see here. And thirdly, whenever A makes B, it's reasonable to assume, isn't it, that A, the creator, is greater than B, the creation. If, for example, I was to go away this evening after our address and I was to make a cake, however well or however badly it turns out, it's soon gone, isn't it? It's a thing of transience and insignificance in comparison to the one that made it in the first place. But it doesn't just stop there, does it? Because you see, the who made God idea crops up less obviously in a probability argument presented by Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, which we may be aware of, we may perhaps even have, have read some of. Now, probability arguments are almost always used naively. So we have to be very careful when we are using probabilities. For those of us that aren't aware, probability is, of course, a branch of maths, not my strong point, it has to be said. Uh, there, but I still get the idea behind the concept here. It, and of course, isn't it, initially with numbers. For example, that the probability of getting heads or tails, uh, for example, if we were to toss a coin. Now, the theory of probability can be applied to the real world, but there is nothing of the real world built into the theory itself. What do we mean by that? Well, 
For example, coin tossing calculations, working out the probability, if we were going to get heads or tails, for example, don't take into account that in the real world application, that coin could actually land on its edge perhaps and get stuck, which could easily happen if this was occurring on a beach, for example. The claim therefore that anything like the origin of life or a particular genetic mutation must happen by chance if you wait long enough is also actually false. That claim is based on the idea that no mathematically possible event has zero probability. But the point is this, what is mathematically probable may actually be physically impossible in the real world, we might say. We need mathematical probability arguments must pass the test of physical reality or be rejected. And, and Richard Dawkins even makes that point himself in another of his books, Climbing Mount Improbable. We need to build the real world into any scenario. Now, in, in physics and in chemistry, if anyone's into physics and chemistry, this is called statistical mechanics. And it's one approach to the science of, of thermodynamics. What does that mean? We're being boggled by science this evening, aren't we? Well, let's try and simplify that a little bit. If, for example, you were driving along a road um, this evening for whatever reason, and as you were driving, you came across a pile of bricks, such as that one there on the screen in the middle of the road, they could have fallen off the back of a builder's van or a lorry, couldn't they? It's quite reasonable to suggest that perhaps there was a van or a lorry or a skip which is going down the road and they hit a pothole, for example, and those bricks fell off the back of that lorry and van and left themselves as a pile in the middle of the road. That is a situation of low complexity, isn't it? It's quite reasonable that that could have happened by chance. And therefore, there is a high probability of that happening spontaneously. But if we continue along that same road and we come across something like this, a neat bungalow built of bricks, it's most unlikely, isn't it, that that bungalow has arisen by accident. There is high complexity, isn't there, to that bungalow. It is a very ordered state that it's in, isn't it? And therefore, there's a low probability that that bungalow happened by chance. Don't know any thermodynamics this evening? But well, let's learn some. I'd like you to imagine that I have got in my hand a wonderful bowl. Now, I've done this so many times. Uh, now this address that I've run out of bowls to do this with. So you'll have to use your imagination for this evening. I want you to imagine that I've got a bowl and I'm going to take that bowl and drop it on the floor. If I drop that bowl on the floor, does it become more or less ordered or organised? Of course, it becomes much less ordered, doesn't it? 
Instead of one nice piece of China having a symmetrical shape, there are many pieces having all sorts of different shapes and sizes that my poor wife would have to tidy up. But just imagine then if I were to go and pick up all of those pieces from off the floor, every last one of them, collect them up in a dustpan, pick them all up and drop them all on the floor again. Would those bits have reassembled themselves into the ordered form of the unbroken bowl? No. Ah, well, that's thermodynamics for you. Disordered states of matter arise spontaneously, such as that bowl smashing on the floor or that pile of bricks appearing on the road. Ordered states do not arise spontaneously. A built bungalow doesn't arise spontaneously, does it? I could sit down with a tube of superglue, perhaps, with that bowl and painstakingly stick those bits all back together again to reassemble a single bowl after expending much effort and some skill to make the pieces more ordered by joining them together in a unique relationship. But that increased order has only been achieved by the cost of directed energy output and intelligent effort. It could never have happened on its own. And the point is this, no matter how many times I were to gather up those pieces of that bowl and drop them on the floor over and over again, if I was to do it for billions and billions of years, there is no way that that would ever reform the unbroken bowl. It would never happen because of this law of thermodynamics. And therefore, the argument advanced by Richard Dawkins boils down essentially to the following reasoning. Firstly, that by common consent, the world in which we live is a highly improbable and highly complex system, which I think most of us would agree with. Yes, it is. Therefore, too, if God created the world, he must be more complex than the world he created, which again, Richard Dawkins, we would agree with, wouldn't we? Therefore, three, God is less probable than the world. Indeed, he's fantastically improbable. So four, God probably doesn't exist. Although produced with somewhat of a flourish, the argument holds no more water than a sieve, does it, if we're being frank? Firstly, we have to accept the dubious assumption that the science of thermodynamics, which was developed to describe the behaviour of matter and energy, applies to God. You may as well apply it to, to love or, or to music. It won't work. What does Dawkins' argument actually say? He says that having agreed that the world does exist in spite of its extreme complexity and organisation, therefore high improbability, the argument goes on to say that God is unlikely to exist because he's, well, uh, highly improbable. 
But by what logic, my dear friends, are we to accept that one highly improbable entity exists, the earth, the world in which we live, while another is highly improbable? God does not exist. It doesn't make any sense, does it? Let's leave that there. Having picked perhaps a few holes in this argument uh, purported by Richard Dawkins and the new atheist, let's move on now to focus on the idea of God. If there is a God, which we as Christadelphians, of course, believe in, what do you think God is really like? What is the source of your ideas on God? Did they come from God himself or did they come from human reasoning? Just stop for a moment and consider this. Would it not make sense for an all-wise creator who has created human life with the ability to think about the eternal and the divine, not to leave a record by which he reveals himself? Such deductions still tell us nothing of his ultimate plan and purpose for his creation. But the fact is, my dear friends, that our creator has not left us in the dark, despite those things which we are told by the atheists that we have. In addition to revealing himself through the complexity and the wonder and the high improbability of the world around us and the natural environment in which we live, he has also given us his word, the Bible. And in his word, God tells us about his nature. He tells us about his will, his character, his plan and purpose for the universe and for mankind and what he wants from us. God is knowable because he chooses to make himself knowable. That is why it's so important, my dear friends, to understand from the Bible what God reveals about himself. We can't make an assumption that we know that there is no God without looking at God's word. And this is one of the contradictions here with Richard Dawkins. He has never bothered to look and to read the Bible for himself. And in reading the Bible for ourselves, we gain an insight into God's plan for the human race. And the real truth, the real truth they say we live in an age of post-truth at the moment, don't we? But we don't if we look at the Bible, because the real truth will amaze you. It is clearly provable from your own Bible. And we can see on the screen there just a, a few passages here that tell us just a few things about what God is actually like. He is eternal. He is immortal. He is invisible. Those things that we sung of, in fact, in our first hymn, didn't we, this evening? Those words from the first of Timothy, chapter one and verse 17. We learn that God is of spirit. He's not flesh and blood as, as we are. John 4 tells us that he's of great power and understanding. We learn that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he is so powerful that he knows the very thoughts of mankind, so Psalm 94 tells us. And despite that, we learn that the Lord God loves and cares for everything that he has made. His plan and purpose is being outworked in the earth. 
scientists dream of coming up with a theory for everything. A scientific theory that will encompass all the workings of the physical universe in a single formulation. That's fair enough, if that's what floats your boat. But there is more to the universe, isn't there, than just matter, energy, space and time. Most of us, I think it's fair to say, believe in the non-material aspects of the world around us. Entities such as love, friendship, beauty, truth, faith, justice and so on. The things that actually make human life worth living. Any embrace these non-material aspects also. And this, uh, my dear friends, is where God comes in, isn't it? The Lord God sets the example in these things. These things come from God, don't they? You see, God is indeed the creator, not the created, as we shall see. The Bible tells us that God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is all powerful. He is all wise. He is a living God who takes care of and delights in all he has made. And there's some passages on the screen there. And I'd like you, if you've got your Bibles out, to have a look at some of these because this reinforces the point for us. What does the Bible say about God? Well, let's start right at the beginning. There are many atheists, perhaps, who have not even opened the Bible at the beginning to try and understand, to try and see where we are coming from. And it's simple, isn't it? It says there in Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The opening of God's word from the outset, revealing God as the creator, not the created. He was the one who was in control of all of the elements, the one of unnumbered power who created all things that were there. And we would encourage you to read the Genesis account to see the logic and the progression in the way that things were made. Come with me to Psalm 8 and verse 3, if you will, just in the middle of your Bibles. Psalm 8 and verse 3. Again, these are not complicated things, but they bring the point home. Psalm 8 and verse 3. As a result of the creation, which we're told God created, uh, verse one, perhaps the connection here, Psalm 8 and verse one. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? I don't know whether you've ever looked up at the night sky. We used to do it fairly regularly on, on CYC camp, in the darkness where there's no light pollution. And, and recently, in fact, on a fishing trip with a, a good friend of mine, Barnaby Harrison, we went fishing and at night, we were out there 
And we looked up and we saw, the, we considered the heavens, the moon and the stars, and you feel so small under the grandeur of that night sky. And in doing so, we realize that there is a creator. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the psalmist says there. And if we could just look at one more, Matthew chapter six, the last of those passages on the screen into the New Testament here. Matthew chapter six. Again, uh, interesting words here um, on this front. Matthew chapter six, the, the care of the Lord God for those things which he's created. Matthew six and verse 26. It says here. I'm in Mark, so that's why that doesn't make sense. Matthew chapter six and verse 26. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, Matthew 6, verse uh, 26. Behold, it says here, the fowls of the air, the birds, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are ye not much better than they? The Lord God cares even for the birds that live in the field. How much more then does he care for mankind whom he has created? Wonderful words, aren't they there? God indeed is the creator not the created. And as such, we must strive when we realise these things to come to God. One simple verse there. How do we draw close to God? How do we get to know him? Without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So that verse in Hebrew says, faith is essential. Faith is required for us to come to God. The Bible describes faith as the evidence of things hoped for and the substance, the evidence of things not seen. You see, faith bridges the gap. A solid faith founded in God's word. And why would we do that? Why would we put our faith in the word of God? After all, it's only a book, isn't it? And here is the crux of the matter. The crux of the matter is that there is proof of God in the Bible. You see, there is an argument again from the new atheist camp that there is no proof of God. He probably doesn't exist. And it clearly shows that many atheists haven't even looked at their Bibles. They've not opened it. They've not bothered to turn the pages, to read or to understand. And this is one of the key criticisms of, Dar uh, of Dawkins. He hasn't looked at the Bible in detail. He hasn't given it the time of day. His comment on the fact that he hasn't done that is, is this. You don't need to understand leprechauns to know they don't exist. What a ridiculous viewpoint that is. Because if he would take the time to open the Bible and to read it and to try and understand it, he, along with anyone else that does, soon comes to the conclusion that the Bible does contain proof that God exists. And it is certain and it is steadfast proof. And there are two examples on the screen there. Very briefly for us to consider, we could go into detail and spend 
weeks and weeks talking about this, couldn't we? There is prophecy contained in the Bible. Things prophesied that would come to pass that have time and time again. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. For the time is at hand, Revelation tells us. We would urge you to open the Bible to consider prophecy. And I'm sure there are other talks uh, at lie on this this uh, idea on prophecy in the Bible and its importance. It is a proof, my dear friends, that God exists. And secondly, the people of Israel. Those words from Jeremiah there on the screen, God says, for I am with thee, for I'll make a full end of the nations whither I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee. And the modern nation of Israel back in their own land is a miracle, my dear friends. Prophesied, long prophesied in God's word. The fact that they are there is quite amazing. And therefore, if we dig and we search and we look in detail, we see the proof that God does exist. Uh, and that proof then leads to faith. Faith in those things which are to come. Faith that God exists. You see, faith is not founded on nothing, is it? Faith is founded on proof from God's word. And this then gives us, ultimately, a hope. You see, God's word doesn't leave us with no hope. It speaks quite powerfully of that hope to come. Those words there from the first of Peter chapter three, blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that hope is a surety that the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth. He will raise the dead and he will establish God's kingdom on this earth. A time when sorrow and sighing will flee away. A time when all things will be made new. A time of peace and a time where God will be all and in all. And God's law will go forth from Jerusalem and there will be peace and safety throughout this earth. You see, the Bible contains this truth. Indeed, God is the creator, not the created. And we must praise and give glory to him for all his goodness and the hope that he sets out there for us. Thank you for listening.